We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3, Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. And today we're talking about active bystandership with Keely Malone, who works with a mediation organization in Western Massachusetts. But first, a little bit about Madness Radio. We are co produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Freedom Center is a Pioneer Valley activist advocacy and support community uh, run by and for people who are looking for alternatives to the mainstream mental health system, people who have different kinds of psychiatric diagnoses like schizophrenia, bipolar, obsessive compulsive, borderline, and who have been abused in the mental health system or are looking for different kinds of holistic options, looking for legal resources, um, community support, uh, alternatives to diagnostic labels, and different ways of dealing with our emotional distress. Uh, we have a lot of different um, programs, including free acupuncture and free yoga. We just added a second free yoga class. We have some free chair massage that happens on um, Mondays now, and a writing group, and a lot of different things going on with the Freedom Center. So please check out our website, which is freedom-center.org. Madness Radio is also co-produced by the Icarus Project, which is a international support community of people who are living outside of the mainstream medical model of uh, mental disorders and looking to options like creativity and spirituality. And there's a lot of great um, discussions going on in the discussion forum at the Icarus Project, as well as a lot of different articles and art and things on our website. There are local groups going on around different parts of the country. So check out the, the Icarus Project website, which is theicarusproject.net. So today my guest is Keely Malone. Keely is an old friend. Uh, she hosts uh, the Parapolitics show here on Valley Free Radio. She's a longtime activist and organizer in the social justice movement, and she's been very much involved in Arise for Social Justice, which is a low-income rights group that the Freedom Center works with um, and has been involved with um, collaborating on different projects over uh, the years. And actually, I've had... Um, the uh, opportunity to be on Keeley's show before talking about the Zyprexa scandal, which was great. Um, great to be there and talk with her um, about that. And um, I recently found out about Keeley's work um, with a mediation organization in um, Franklin County in Athol near um, Orange and Athol north of uh, Northampton. And the work, one of the projects that she does there is uh, called the Active Bystandership training. And um, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that we're very interested in really deep, um, deep changes in society's treatment of people who are um, uh, violent or who are causing problems or disruptive or disturbing situations, people who often get pulled into the mental health system or get pulled into the prison system, and really looking at how society's response um, is often something that just creates um, more problems and compounds the situation rather than really resolving it. We did um, a show about the restorative justice movement and alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to punishment, and alternatives to a whole vengeance model of how you deal with crime. And Keeley's work um, looks at this idea of bystandership, that um, when harm is happening, not just a crime, but uh, any kind of harm, that there often are witnesses and people around when it's happening, and we don't step in, we don't take action. I'm sure everyone um, listening has this experience. I know I have the experience of just pushing it out of your mind or not knowing what to do and not really feeling empowered, and then just we, we become kind of the lonely crowd. We become a very alienated, individualistic um, unaccountable and irresponsible society when we don't really know how to uh, respond to things that are happening in our community with our neighbors, people that we meet on the street, and we just sort of put it out of mind. And one of the more extreme examples of this um, is an incident that happened outside of Brattleboro, 
Vermont, and people have heard me talk about this quite a bit because I was involved in advocating for this um, man, John Brody, and he was in a, some kind of extreme state, and he was acting very weird. And imagine what would have happened if the people that he had come across had had some empowerment and some active bystandership skills instead of calling the police, because what happened was um, one of the people that their door, he had knocked on their door in the middle of the night, 11 o'clock at night, um, saying that he was running for president, which is a you know weird thing to be doing. And um, But instead of just engaging with him and saying, hey, do you need something? What's going on? Is there some way I can help you? Are you okay? Uh, the person just called the police. And um, given the experience that people in the mental health system have, and given the experience that John Brody had, often calling the police can escalate a situation if the police aren't really needed or you don't really know what's going on the police can be can add a very escalating ingredient to the situation and we don't know exactly what happened with john brody because there weren't witnesses other than the single police officer but apparently what happened was that when the, a police officer was called and then showed up and confronted john and asked him for id and started asking questions um, he something happened and he became very triggered and ended up running off and, and diving into a river and drowning and dying. And it's a real um, tragedy. It's of course the police officer was just trying to help, but the way that it is in our society, um, people have been exposed to force in the mental health system, and John had been exposed to force in the mental. He'd been he'd been treated very violently by the mental health system many times. And um, he may have, we don't know, but he may have associated that cop with more violent treatment and felt like he just had to run. He may have panicked. He may have been in a trauma, a trauma flashback kind of situation. So, you know, we think about that kind of encounter, which happens again and again in society. Um, many, many instances of, of people running into police and then escalation and then and then dying and we think about well why were the police called in the first place why did the police get involved and and maybe if um individuals understood this idea of active bystandership that it's it's really good to feel empowered and take some steps and if there is somebody who's in in distress or who's in a state that you don't understand you can just ask them and just sort of find out what's um what's going on the same is true if there's something that's going on that looks like it might be harmful or looks like it might be violent there's an argument going on or or um some kind of fight and you're not quite sure what the situation is just you know step up and and try and find out more information or just intervene sometimes as keely talks about um just stepping out of the passive spectator role being active and intervening in very simple ways like just asking a question um, can really break a pattern um, and it can change the outcome of a situation. So I was really excited to um, find out about Keeley's work and I'm really interested in finding out um, more and maybe getting the author of the book that she mentions, um, The Psychology of Good and Evil, on the show as well. So we'll go now to the interview with uh, Keeley Malone about active bystandership. Keeley, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So you work with Quabbin Mediation in Western Massachusetts? Yes, I work in Quabbin Mediation. Our main office is in Orange, Mass., which is in the North Quabbin region of Massachusetts. And I know you're also an organizer with Arise for Social Justice, and you also do work with the Freedom Center. That is all true. So I'm really interested in this work around um, bystandership and how people who are encountering um, conflict or violence or problems or um, crisis can not just be standing on the sidelines and not doing anything. So tell us a little bit about what this is all about. Okay. Um, well, the name of the program that we run out of Quabbin Mediation is called Training Active Bystanders. Our acronym is TAB. How we run the program at this point, we've just launched it. We just spent this whole past school year training in the schools, um, in the Orange and Athol schools. Um, Athol is a neighboring town to Orange up in the Quabbin area. And so we spent this year training all of our 8th grade and 10th grade students on how to intervene when harm is happening in their community. And we actually began the year by training um, a bunch of 8th graders and 10th graders and 11th graders to do the trainings alongside with us. And so that's been really, really great program, really interesting. 
So when you say how to intervene when harm is happening in the community, what do you mean by harm in the community? What do you mean by active bystandership? Sure. Um, we, we've done a lot of work this year to try to get the kids to expand their understanding of harm. I think that um, a lot of school-based programs have been focused mostly on bullying, and kids seem to have a pretty good understanding of bullying now. Um, there's been a lot of curriculums of building empathy for a bully, trying to understand the psychological reasons why someone might be bullying, and to have more of a larger understanding of that. But what we're trying to get the kids to understand is that harm happens in our communities on many different levels. Um, it's not just school-based. We talk to them most about community-based um, and bring some of these examples back to the school setting because that is where we're teaching it. But we're trying to instead foster a cultural shift here and not just how to particularly act in one particular situation. So we've been spending most of our time trying to get the kids to understand that harm happens on many different levels um, and that people are harmed both intentionally and, and, and unintentionally. So in our trainings, yes, we talk about how to de-escalate a fistfight or how to stop stop something that's going on that's violent happening right there in front of them, but we also expand all our definitions to include how to assist in a car accident or how to assist someone who seems confused and doesn't seem to know what's going on in their surroundings and things like that. Um, so we've spent most of our time really trying to expand that and to let remind the kids that these roles are very lucid. Um, the language that we use is a little bit difficult. We talk about bystanders and we talk about active bystanders, people who actually get themselves involved. Um, we define bystanders as anyone who's a witness to something and in a position to act. So we have the active bystanders, we have the passive bystanders. Um, and then the other language that we've chosen for this curriculum is we've chosen the language of target, which helps sometimes um, and gets a little stickier in other situations like with car accidents and that sort of thing. But we felt as if it was important that people understand that the harm oftentimes is happening to one person or a collective group of people. Um, so we use the target language for that. And then we've coined the term harm doer for the person who or people who are at the at um, the antagonistic end of the harm. So I think one of the strengths of this program is that we teach kids that we all are in those positions at varying times in our lives. And so um, we do a lot of empathy building based on the fact that we sometimes are targets and sometimes we're harm doers and sometimes we're bystanders and sometimes we are active and sometimes we're passive. So just sort of the fluidity of those roles. So you're not just implementing this program. This is actually something that you're, you're in the process of developing and creating and coming up with it. Are there programs like this in other parts of the country, or is this really innovative and new? Or Right. No, this is, this is pretty innovative. Um, there are a couple bullying programs that do talk about bystanders, specifically in a bullying situation, but this is the first of its kind to look at it more as a, as a larger cultural issue. Yeah, um, so we've been doing this program alongside with Irvin Staub, who's the author of The Psychology of Good and Evil, amongst other writings. Um, he is a world-renowned uh, authority on bystandership. And so he recently retired from the University of Massachusetts, where he was the chair of a program there, um, but has also done a lot of work internationally. He's done work um, in Los Angeles with the LAPD following the Rodney King beating, went out there to do trainings about how officers can intervene when they feel as if other officers might be going overboard. Um, he's also more recently been doing a lot of things in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. He went and did a lot of uh, racial healing programs that he was instituting down in in the Louisiana area. Um, he's also been asked to help with reducing violent crime and promoting bystandership in Amsterdam. Um, most, I think, most people know of his work in the in the Rwandan genocide issue and going back, going down and trying to talk about bystandership amongst the Hutus and Tutsis and how do we how do we figure out a way um, to break these cultural these cultural barriers that prevent us from taking action in the face of of genocide. So and you're you're working with high school kids. So is this funded through the school district, or how is where is it funded through? Um, most of the funding for this program is actually coming from the Department of Justice, um, and then we also had um, John Olver as our representative on the federal level in that area. So John Olver was really helpful in getting us federal federal funding as well as state funding. Um, our state reps have been really supportive too, Steve Brewer, et cetera. So. So let's talk about the program itself. So you're talking about active bystandership. So maybe give me an example of a situation that this would apply to. I mean, I, I think this has very interesting implications, both around mental health issues, where you're often dealing with situations that are conflict situations or that need de-escalation. I also think it has a lot of implications for just how to create a more 
just and caring society where we're not relying on government to take care of things which doesn't work but we're really creating strong community ability to respond to situations but what are some, what's an example of a kind of scenario and then what is it that you're actually teaching these kids or, or anyone really to, to do in those situations um, well, I would say that, first of all, um, that this program is not taught only in isolation. This program is being taught in the schools where we have already done basic conflict resolution with all these students. We've done conflict resolution. We laid down the groundwork with them in seventh grade. Um, and so now we're coming back to them in eighth grade and teaching active bystandership. So they already have the concepts of how to de-escalate certain conflicts and how to take ownership over their emotions and how to communicate more clearly. So that's sort of the groundwork that's been laid for these particular students. Okay, well then get, start. let's start with that then. What are some, just for a listener who maybe doesn't even know anything about the idea of de-escalation other than, you know, call 911, you know, right. what kinds of things have you, have you are, there, are they pretty simple? Is it kind of complicated or what sort of things do you teach people? Um, basically around conflict res resolution, one of the strongest things that we teach people to de-escalate a situation is to try to be quiet ourselves. Um, a lot of times when we're in conflict, all that we're doing is really just getting louder and louder and escalating our emotions because we're feeling not heard. And so the first thing that we try to teach the kids to do is just to close their mouths for a moment and try to just listen, just try to listen to the other person um, and see how that can shift things. Because often, as I like to talk to the kids a lot about, when we're in an argument, especially with somebody that we know really well, we've already anticipated what it is that they're going to say and we already have a response ready before they've even spoke so we've already decided what they're going to say and we don't do a lot of listening so um the listening piece of that really helps in the training active bystanders program because the kids have already been taught the power of listening and how listening and responding to your environment properly can really improve your situation and so um so now to sort of shift on into into active bystandership carrying those same concepts over um, I think that we start the curriculum really with the kids just talking about the universal ways in which people react um, to, to a crisis situation. And I think that that is really helpful for the kids to be normalized, to normalize their own reactions when they think back on crisis situations that they've been in, and also to give it language. We talk a lot about that with, with our student trainers especially, that they know all these concepts. We're just helping to give them names and helping them to understand the larger context of it. So we spend a lot of time when the kids talking about the inhibitors and why bystanders wouldn't take action in a particular situation. And for me, um, in, in teaching this, the just the understanding of the inhibitors has really allowed me to overcome them a lot on my own. Yeah, when we were actually first talking about this, I guess a couple of days ago, that was like I, had, I felt like a light bulb went off mm -hmm. when you were explaining. So these are the inhibitors are the kinds of reasons why, if you're a bystander, if you're witnessing something, some harm that's happening, the reasons why you don't act. Those are the inhibitors, right? right. And what are, what are those? Um, the basic inhibitors that we teach is we we talk about one of the the major inhibitors being um, pluralistic ignorance. So this idea that when we're sort of in a in an environment where there's multiple people present, if other people are ignoring things, then it makes it easier for us to ignore it as well. Um, and this inhibitor was 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 coined from research done in, in an urban area of Chicago, in Chicago, where um, there was a person that was lying there in the street and they're sort of watching all of the passersby and everyone's just kind of hurriedly going along their business. And as long as everyone else was hurriedly going along their business and not helping out this guy, then they all felt like they didn't have to stop and help either. So just that idea that, um, that if, if everyone's wearing these masks, we can easily continue to wear ours. So if nobody else is doing anything, then it must be okay, so I don't need to do anything. It's kind of like a crowd mentality. It's, a, it's conformism, really, is what it is. Yeah, exactly, precisely. So, um, so that being one of the one of the main inhibitors that we start off with with the kids, and they really understand that because they're in situations all the time. You know, when I break it down for them, it's like what happens in the hallway when there's some kid and his whole stack of books gets kicked over. Everyone still continues going to class, um, and so we, we spend some time with them just trying to figure out, brainstorming. Well, how do we how do we break that inhibitor? And everyone says, obviously, the easiest thing to do is just to straight up call attention to it. To you know. Um, take action yourself, but also to call, make other people accountable around you. You know, don't you see that this kid's books are all over the hallways? It's something that that easy to like really shift the situation. You mean like yelling out to the people around you, mm -hmm. or, or talking to the people around you, say, "Hey, what's what's going on here? Don't you see what's going on?" Just calling attention to the fact that no one's doing anything. Right. Just not not wearing that mask, not continuing to add to this pluralistic ignorance. Um, and the second one that is also really important too that that I think has been really powerful for me is the 
the diffusion of responsibility. And so the idea that if there's other people around, there's somebody else who is more equipped to handle the situation or could handle it better or will handle it. Um, someone who might actually know this person, et cetera. So. Or like, oh, the cops are on the way or, oh, the therapists or the, the um, crisis people or the psychiatrists are on the way or the teachers are on the way or the adults or the grownups are on the way or something like that. Right, exactly. So this this idea that we can all just diffuse the responsibility and the the situation. It's not my problem, kind of thing. Not my problem, and probably somebody else will handle it. Um, and you know, one of the examples that I use in the classroom that that the kids take pretty seriously is one of the incidents that inspired Irvin Staub to start doing this work around bystandership, which was in the in the late seventies um, in an area of New York City. There was a woman who was raped and murdered between two very large apartment buildings, and so these apartment buildings were about twenty stories each. So, you know, est estimating four apartments at least a floor, you're looking at eighty different units. It was a hot summer night, and there was many windows open in the buildings, and the woman was being very vocal, and making a lot of noise, and by the end, during the investigation, it turned out that no one had, in fi fact, even called the authorities. And it was on these ideas, and when they went around asking people, you know, what happened, everyone kept saying, like, yeah, you know, I heard her, but everybody heard her. I figured somebody had already called. And so it's this idea that the kids really take to heart, too, when I throw it out and say, you know, what would have happened if if one person had called? Well, you know, maybe the crime could have been stopped. Or, and what would have happened if 15 people have called? And people, you know, the only the only downside of that that the kids can come up with is, well, they say, well, if it was New York City, even our kids in Orange know, have heard rumors of the slow response of the New York City police. So they think, well, maybe if more people had called, they would have gotten there faster. And then we get up to, well, what would have happened if 40 of those apartments all called? They say, well, you know, maybe the dispatcher would have been annoyed. That's the only downside that we can find of that. So the idea of if just taking responsibility, because you don't know for sure that somebody else will. And us, by naming that inhibitor, what we're actually saying is we actually know that psychologically people are thinking that somebody else will. So that's the that's the inhibitor. That's the displacement of how what is that diffusion. one? The diffusion of responsibility. Mm -hmm. So we've got two. We've got the idea that everybody just goes along with what everybody else is doing, which is ignoring it. And then the other one is the belief that somebody else somewhere is going to take care of it, so I don't have to. So what's the what's the next uh, inhibitor? Um. Hmm. I'm going through one of my favorites. Um, I think that well, one of the ones that's really important, I think, is danger and the, the cost of actually helping because safety is a really big issue for us. Um, one of the reasons why we've begun this curriculum in the area that we were, I mean, that's where our program is based, but the reason we were drawn to this work is because a few years back, there was an incident in Turner's Falls um, where there was a boy that was beaten to death by baseball with a baseball bat while there was about 20 or 30 other kids standing around watching. And so um, we decided that we needed to take some sort of action and start talking to the kids about how to intervene. But it was really important to us that they learn how to intervene safely because we're not asking for there to have been two or three kids uh, murdered that day. And so trying to figure out, you know, what are the particular dangers and costs? And we also break them down um, where we talk about the dangers and cost, what could actually happen to someone if they get involved in a situation that's really violent and really escalated. But then we even separate out the, dis the, the fear of disapproval as well. So we take out the social aspect and we look at that separately and train, help the kids figure out how they could act in a way that wouldn't ostracize them socially and separate that out from their physical safety. And, um, I think that that's been really helpful. We've we've had some of these courses taught with local police as well. They've come in and done some of the training, and especially around the safety issues, they come in and always reassure the kids that it can be an anonymous phone call and there'll be no investigation to figure out who told them about this fight. But if they feel as if that someone's really going to be in danger, if they know that there's going to be a weapon there, um, that it might be wise just to call the authorities um, in that particular situation. So. Yeah, so we have the fear of disapproval. We have um, the cost or dangers of helping, the diffusion of responsibility, pluralistic ignorance. What else? Oh, I think the ambiguity of need is also a really important one. I'm not really sure if somebody needs help or if somebody wants help. And that's been one that's really changed my life is that I've gotten into just the habit of just straight up asking at this point. Um, if I see someone, you know, if we want to get into the diffusion of responsibility, that's often. I'm not a cell phone carrier. So if I see somebody on the side of the road stranded, it never occurs to me to stop because I figure, well, I know I don't have a cell phone and probably they do and probably somebody else does. But I've gotten to the habit now of just stopping and pulling over and asking 
asking if they need any help because I do know how to jack up a car and get a tire off. You know, there are some skills that I have. Um, and so I've gotten to the habit of just asking. And even over the last year, I'll say that many of the few times that I have stopped, people have always seemed really surprised and thanked me, you know, and told me that they were all set or that someone was on the way. But I think that the idea, if we start getting into how this fosters a different community and how this creates a different world, I mean, that's where I see it. When I see that look of surprise on their face when a stranger is just pulling over, you know, to make sure everything's okay or um, if I'm in a situation, you know, in a shopping mall or something and I see that somebody seems distressed if I ask them, you know, you can't find your car, I can't find mine either or whatever and start engaging in this conversation, you just see how people start to shift and start seeing, um, I feel that there starts to be this evolution of helping um, rather than this evolution of harming, which I think especially in, I mean, I teach this primarily in rural areas, but I think that there is this whole myth in more urban areas that everyone's out to get you. And I would like to really see that starting to shift to the fact that people are actually there to, to help. Are there other aspects to the training that you, that you work on um, beyond these in inhibitors, the kinds of things that prevent people from stepping out of that bystander role? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think part of it is is having the skills to. And so we spend a lot of time just talking about how to how to be a competent bystander and, um, you know, really assessing the situation and figuring out what what you have what your own personal skills are and then looking at the people around you. A lot of this is about recruiting others to help you. Um, and the kids will be the first one to offer that up. Even when it comes to the safety issue, when I when when I discuss with them and a lot of my students do, in fact, know either the, the kid that was killed or the kid that is now in jail for that beating in Turner's Falls. And when we bring that up, a lot of them will say, you know, and I'll say, you know, I'm not asking you to put yourself in harm's way. And they'll say, yeah, but if five, if five people had stepped up and told him he had to stop, you know, five people could have wrestled that baseball bat away from him. And so they even start to feel um, really empowered just by the idea of, 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 of being allowed to recruit others. Um, and I think that that allowance is, is, is the issue that we need to really start working on, especially in the school systems, because there's a really, there's a very strong idea that physical violence is not acceptable anywhere within a school building, understandably, as it's supposed to be a safe place for all people to be. But um, this understanding of of kids involving themselves in these fights in any sort of way is really frowned upon. Um, and so that's been one sort of difficult area with the bystandership is that kids are still afraid to intervene in a school setting because they don't want to also get suspended. They don't want the school camera to just see them and they're in the mix and for them to get um, further blamed. But but yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about recruiting others, recruiting allies, figuring out who's around you, what your strengths are, what their strengths are, um, and really just starting to to talk a lot about about that evolution of helping and talking about how it can change our community values if we really see each other as potential allies instead of p potential enemies. So you mentioned when at school when some students are being beat up on or um, someone's car is broken down by the side of the road or in a city someone's being attacked. What are some other kinds of scenarios of bystandership that you think can really benefit from people taking a different attitude? Well, we spend a lot of time talking about, um, you know, sort of preemptive bystandership as well. You know, how, how difficult is it to you, for you to extend a smile or, you know, or a, or a hello to a student who's being really regularly targeted or isolated from the rest of the social community and that sort of thing. Um, and just understanding that that people can be bystanders in many ways. You know, you don't have to wait until there's a physical fight. You can step in at the time when it's just a rumor um, that I spent a lot of time talking with eighth grade girls about their ability to just not spread that rumor if they just don't go and turn around and tell that story to somebody else, that that in its own way is a way of taking an active role in a harmful situation. Wait, break that down for me again the, about the rumor, like a rumor as a harmful situation and then a bystander is someone who just spreads the rumor or doesn't or just listens to it or how, how does that work? Well, I would say that in that particular situation, if a rumor's begun and then someone who then goes and spreads that rumor now becomes part of the harm doing and is the harm doer there themselves. But um, for someone who simply just does not repeat that rumor and does not continue it to spread, that that is a way of taking more of a passive bystandership role, but still somehow involving themselves. And if they're actually to stop that rumor and to challenge that and try to get at the root of it um, and figure out why, what the larger situation is and why this animosity is there rather than just perpetuating the harm, that that's a way of taking a really strong active bystandership role. And um, 
And that's been pretty well received. And again, just looking at the empathy piece of that, talking a lot about how we know how it feels when we're on the receiving end of that harm. And so trying to figure out a way to not have somebody else feeling the way that we can imagine we'd feel. How does this affect the kids that do the training? Do you really see them get it and there's behavior change and as the, the climate in the school start to change? Do you know of, of incidents where the active bystandership gets some um, actually put into practice and there are different kinds of results? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the strongest change has been amongst our student trainers because they've been the ones who have been really just living and breathing this and teaching this all year long. You mean the, the trainers that you recruit from the students themselves who then they are training their own peers? Right. Yeah. We do a lot of peer teaching at Quad Mediation. We feel like that's a really powerful model. And so we um, we train students. We went through an intensive training in the fall, and now they go around to all of the different classes with us. So those students we've seen the largest change from also because we spent a lot of time teaching with them. Um, but one, one particular trainer... Um, at the beginning of the year, right right as we were doing the active bystandership, there was a question um, from the school on whether or not this was the best choice because this kid had tendencies to get in trouble sometimes and, and wasn't a straight-A student, which is precisely the candidate that we want. We want the real kids who are really, you know, able to make connections with this work. And so... And so at the beginning of the year, there was some sort of some sort of scuffle. And when I talked to him about it, he was telling me that it's really difficult for him growing up in that area as a biracial student and that someone had been talking racist, had been making racist jokes about his his parent. And so um, so there was this little scuffle that happened and there was no suspension that happened. There was no physical violence. It was just sort of a tense moment. And the school was concerned with him going on and training these things. And we said, no, you know, I think that he's still a right choice. And then, um, you know, flash forward now after teaching this for most of the school year, um, about a month ago, I was training with him and he was a little late coming to class and he apologized for being late. And at the end of class, he explained to me that why he was late and was saying that he was sitting in the cafeteria having breakfast and was having this discussion with a, another student um, who was talking about, who was saying pretty racist things. Um, and the difficulty with this student was it wasn't a joke and it was part of this really serious discussion where this student kept saying to him, um, Basically, the the conversation was somewhere along the lines of the this white student not clearly understand not not ha- not having a historical understanding of non-white civilizations and thinking that in order for something to be considered a civilized area, there had to be there had to be white people there. So this was the conversation that was happening. So it was a somewhat intellectual conversation, which was really difficult. Um, for our, our student trainer to be sitting here and listening to this. And he kept asking the kid, like, and trying to probe him for more information. And he said to me, you know, that he could feel his temper just kind of going up. And then halfway through, he thought, you know what? Like, not only do I believe in this active bystandership, but, you know, I'm, I'm in this school to be a role model. And, you know, I can't lose it here, even though this kid is saying such messed up stuff. Um, and so the reason he was late to class is that after their conversation, he went by the administration office and sat down with one of the administrators and said, there's a real serious problem with this kid and he really lacks knowledge. And I would really hope that somebody would be able to sit down and talk to him about this because he's perpetuating these really racist ideas. And I don't believe that he intends to. And um, so that was him taking a really active role. I mean, taking it as far as to sit down with administration that doesn't always look very fondly at him as well um, and to say, you know, this kid really needs help rather than just lashing out in in a violent and angry way um, that he was previously inclined to. So what are some other examples? Uh, Other examples of the growth? Um, I think that We've had a lot of examples just within the school that we've been hearing back from teachers and from administrators of just students helping out students in general. Um, we had an incident where we had in um, in Mahar, we have both junior high and high school there. So an incident where there was a junior high student that was really upset at lunch and was sort of on the verge of tears and this other upperclassman who's 11th grade 10th or 11th grade who kind of like took him aside and like took a walk around the school with him was asking what was going on with him and like took him over to student services to see if he wanted to talk to anybody when he was reluctant to talk to this kid here and and even went back to student services and said you know like you sure you want to talk to these grown-ups we can just go hang out if you want to just talk to me and so we've seen you know a few incidents like that um especially with our um, junior high, junior high school girls. We've had some incidents too, where there's been that same sort of rumor mill that happens all of the time, and girls really stepping in and and trying to build empathy amongst feuding cliques and that kind of thing too. But I mean, in general, this stuff it definitely takes time. We've had we're under a microscope right now. This being the first year that we've done this, and so a lot of people are looking for more results, and we just keep 
we just keep talking about these these smaller everyday results that are what we're in the work for to see these everyday things happen. Um, but I think I think that there's a lot of promise in it. And I can say, I mean, just in my own life, how much it's just changed me just to think about these ideas differently and just to see myself as someone who is competent at certain things and to see myself as someone who doesn't want to just um, increase the harm. I think that's one of the a really powerful point of, of the research that Irvin, pardon me, that Irvin has done, which is just that, um, that when someone is harmed and there are others present, whether they are harming or not, the psychological effect of that traumatic experience is so much more severe for that person. And, um, and also looking at how it affects the, the bystanders' ideas, because bystanders who, perpet- who, who um, repeatedly are witnesses to harm they become to be much more distrustful and see the world as a much more mean place because they're witnessing this harm. And then even when they don't themselves step in, they have the guilt compounded with not stepping in. And then oftentimes that turns into rage and sort of this rejection of society anyway and feeling as if, well, even if I had stepped in, it might not have changed things. I could have gotten hurt. And so um, I think that those are some of the deeper issues that we can't see necessarily in the day-to-day, but having an understanding and, and teaching and a deeper understanding as to what the psychological effects are for the harm doers the target and the bystander. So that's interesting. So when someone is harmed and there are witnesses and they don't do anything, there's actually studies that show that that traumatic impact is greater on the person who's been victimized. Yes. And then then there's, of course, there's this this effect that happens on the witnesses themselves who don't do anything. And then they have all these psychological um, impacts as well. Right. And then, of course, the psychological impact on the person doing the harm, which has been the major focus of these bullying type programs that I spoke of before, which is we understand that when the harm isn't interrupted, the person thinks that this is okay, an acceptable way of being, and then that perpetuates that type of behavior. Um, and that oftentimes with younger with younger kids, they actually think that that is an admirable behavior and that shows them being tough or somehow would elevate their social status when, off, when, when oftentimes when you ask um, the targets or you ask any of the bystanders, it's completely the opposite. They have very little respect for that person because they need to sort of um, use their physical might to try to control situations. And um, in, in sort of intuitively, other kids are not drawn to that. Um, but when no one interrupts it, it's misunderstood as the person doing the harm as acceptable. And do you think it really, this kind of idea of active bystandership, of intervening, of stepping in and doing something, do you think it really does apply to violent situations as well? Um, I think that it can. I think that I, I think that uh, especially calling attention to violent situations because there's a lot of times in which people, when they're in really high emotional states, are not really necessarily um, not necessarily aware of their surroundings, oftentimes not even necessarily aware of what's happening with inside their own bodies or even what's happening there in that violent situation. So I think that there are ways of just in- interrupting that. And the interruption itself may and may may allow a bit, a moment for de-escalation. Like what kind of interruption and what kind of de-escalation would that look like? Well, I think for example, I, I, um, I think back to a time not so, not so long ago, a couple months ago when I was in a parking lot and I was sitting in my car and I was talking to the other person that was in my car before we went into the store. And then I noticed that there was this couple a few rows away that were fighting in their car. And I sort of turned to my friend and said, do you mind if we just stay here for a minute? And it was just my instinct. It wasn't me being nosy. I just felt like I didn't know how this was going to go. And I just sort of felt like, you know, it's this busy parking lot. Everyone's sort of rushing into this store to buy whatever it is that they need. And I just felt like, why don't we just hang out a little bit and keep an eye on this? Um, And I watched the situation go through many stages. I use this as an example when I talk to the kids about that ambiguity of need and we go through the whole situation. So the situation begins with just the two of them sort of screaming in the car. And then we watched watched as a male exited the car and started to walk away. So I asked the students, you know, what do you think was going on there? And they say, well, it looks like maybe he just wanted to calm down or something. And I agree. So that helps me with my ambiguity of need. Okay, maybe I don't need to intervene at this point because it looks as if looks as if he's walking away. And then um, then I notice that the female in the car starts honking the horn, and she's honking the horn repeatedly, and she keeps looking back and waving back to the guy. And then I say, what do you think's going on there? And the kids say, well, you know, it could be a couple things. Maybe he has the car keys, and so she doesn't want to be stuck there in the car. Or, you know, maybe he, maybe she's not done yelling at him, or maybe she really wants him to come back. Or So then... Um, 
in this particular situation. So then the male comes back to the car. And when he arrives back at the car, the doors are locked. And the woman is still inside. And she's yelling at him through the rolled up windows with the doors locked. So what do you think is going on there? And then the students say, well, it seems as if she might be a little afraid for herself because she has the doors locked, which was my instinct too, which is why I continued to stay and sit. And I wasn't really sure um, at that point, you know, whether or not the two of them wanted my help, whether me stepping in would, would, de-escalate or escalate the situation. I didn't want to um, add to the embarrassment of the situation, have them just sort of go off and have it continue. Um, and so then they went through this whole sort of episode of him trying to get into the car and her not letting him in the car. And then finally she did open the door and then, um, and then he sort of lunged at her. And I think that at that point, any sort of interruption was helpful you know a honking of a horn from our car you know if we had if we had felt comfortable to just get out of the car and start walking over towards that way and offer help you know is there anything that you need do you guys you know hey i know i saw you wanted to go for a walk you know do you why don't the two of us go for a walk do you want to talk about this and just offering that um, especially because i think that with domestic violence you never really know the the intricacies of those relationships and how those things work out and you certainly don't want to just kind of stand around with your arms folded looking down your nose because this is already understood to be a behavior that isn't beneficial for either party but they're feeling really trapped in that situation so trying to figure out a way to offer help um so i think that that's a really powerful example and the kids really like to go through that and think about how they would how they would react and what they would do in those particular situations, which is important. And that's one of the things we stress a lot is the more that you have, the closer you are to having a game plan, the better off you are. Um, and the better you understand your own competencies and those with you. You know, if, if my friend had also been really hip to this training and we had both felt as if we were physically able to take this guy, then maybe we would have run right over there. But we, being able to accurately assess the situation, I think for all parties is one of the most important parts. What are the possible implications for mental health kinds of situations? Well, I think that um, I think that many of the situations, I mean, even just with down with the regular conflict resolution things of just learning to listen and taking more of a backseat approach on things and asking a lot of questions. We do that in bystandership as well. Asking questions, trying to figure out where people are at and what it is that people need themselves. Um, but I think the offering help can be really valuable. And I don't think that I don't. I think that to ask that question, your skill level can be rather low just to say, you know, if is there anything that I could do for you? Is there anything that you need from me? Is there anything that you need from anybody? Can I help you out in any way? Just asking those simple questions sort of allows the person um, to figure out where they're oriented in the situation. And if they do want intervention at that point, and if they do want to go with, you know, this friend or family member's intervention, or even possibly the stranger's intervention over that of an authority or someone that they might have more of a triggering reaction to. I mean, I think for me, that's one of the things that this work is really powerful about is just trying to get back these connections that we have lost in our communities when we become so isolated. And so that our instinct isn't to automatically call the authorities instead of going over and talking to our neighbor who's yelling or screaming, you know, going over and saying, like, I'm concerned. Um, I can hear what's going on. And I want to know if there's anything I can do rather than just sending an authority who might then complicate this individual's life by having them really involved in a different system. Yeah. And I guess also just asking someone what they need and then also being willing to say, okay, they, they say they don't need anything. Yeah. So then just accepting that what looks like a very distressed situation from the outside might just be what the person is going through mm -hmm. in that moment. In the wake of the um, Virginia Tech um, killings, a lot of people in the media and in the society have been putting out this, what, what to me seems like a crazy idea, which is that, well, if more people were, were armed, then there would be a greater capacity to intervene in a situation of violence like that. What do you, I mean, I have some thoughts of what I think about that, but what do you think about that? Well, I think, I think that one of the things that's really powerful to understand is that there were a lot of active bystanders in this. A lot of people related to our work when this originally happened said, you know, oh, where are the bystanders? And then there was this sort of response, um, not necessarily connected from the questions being asked to us, but well, they were all left without guns and therefore couldn't defend themselves. But the idea that there there were a lot of people that took active roles, that there was a professor that held, um, you know, held the door off and got most of his class out the window before he was shot and killed. And so there were people that really did step in in, crisis, in this crisis situation and try to take an active role. Um, but I think that a lot of the questions that should be so it wasn't just, oh, they didn't have guns, so they couldn't do anything. Actually, they did do a lot, and it sounds like they may have actually helped the situation with the things that they did do. Yeah, for sure. 
for sure. And I think that um, where where my I come in with my lens is like, what about everybody else? You know, it seemed as if these these bystanders, these individuals, these professors, these classmates really did everything within their ability to de-escalate the situation. So for me, the disappointment falls back on the school and the authorities. And why weren't why wasn't there more of a reaction from the higher levels, I guess? Um, because I think that that's really important. And when we're talking about the work that we're doing, that's exactly we're going through. We're going at this from the grassroots up because that's the way in which we operate as a small not grassroots nonprofit. Um, but the idea is that until we change these larger structures, um, our work can be carried out in the community, but not necessarily uh, like the problems that I alluded to in our school systems. Yeah, let's talk more about the larger political um maybe in philosophical implications of this, because it really comes from a place of of not improving services and emergency response services, although maybe that's part of it. It really comes from a place of empowering communities to to step in and take some capacity and say, okay, I can actually do something about situations. Let's let's just talk about what, what are your thoughts about the political implications of this work and what kind of vision do you have about the kind of, of restructuring or rethinking of what community is all about that, that goes into what you're, you're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're huge. I think the implications are huge because I think that, um, as I said earlier, I think it's about just making those connections again within our communities and seeing ourselves not as isolated members sort of roaming around each other, but rather as um, you know, only only a, an arm's length away. And if we just reach out, that we can start doing these things. We spend, we, we talk about, um, you know, how does active bystandership apply to the river down the road that's so polluted by the old mills that people have trouble fishing in it, you know, and really start thinking about, okay, so as, as a bystander, what can you do there? Well, I can talk to the town administrators. Well, I can talk to the property owners that own those old mills and find out why they haven't been cleaned up yet. Well, I can get together with a group of my friends and see if they're interested in organizing some sort of river cleanup and trying to figure out ways in which you you include yourself and then you look at the power within your community um being as you know as 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 an anarchist myself i see that's that being the strength in that movement is that seeing that we as individuals need to take responsibility and then open up possibilities for other people to get involved in that organization as well and i think i but i do think that one of the powerful ways of this work doesn't necessarily just shift all that responsibility off of those powers that be but actually we we start the changing as i said from the grassroots and then it has to change therefore on on up because um if there's all of these people doing all this organization and doing all of this work and it's constantly coming up to hit against this wall then i think that that's when that wall is going to have to shift um and that those people are going to have to understand that that there's this this larger movement that wants people to be working on these things and wants people to be involved and does not appreciate the isolation that is perpetuated by systems economic systems like capitalism does it relate to the sort of disaster preparedness talk that's happening among a lot of, of people these days deal, dealing with like potential um, war situations, but also just natural disasters and um, economic problems that could be happening in the future and just looking at you know, terrorist attacks and different um, ways that people can respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. There's been a lot of this emergency preparedness discussions going on, and um, I hope I know that in in our area here at the Five Rivers Council that there was a woman for our organization that sent in um, some writings about active bystandership. And we're always trying to say, like, and don't forget, you know, that's great that you're going to figure out how your house can live off the grid when and if, you know, all other sources fail. But don't forget that there's also seven other houses there on your street and trying to figure out a way that people um, can be thinking about these things, not just how am I going to save my own but also trying to figure out how how we can, as a larger community, can be prepared for these things. Yeah, there is this kind of survivalist mentality of, okay, I'm going to be isolated, and how can I be independent? How can I make it on my own and and um, be self-sufficient? You hear the phrase self-sufficient mm-hmm. a lot, but this is a very different thing. This is about how can we actually be involved with each other in our communities in an active way to respond to very complicated kinds of situations. Yeah, and I think it's really important right now because I think that as people get more scared, they are just thinking about how they're going to save themselves. And so I think this is precisely the moment when this work has to become really strong and people need to understand that it's not about just saving yourself. And and the reality and sort of reality checking that too. I mean, if you go ahead and you, you know, you make your 15 room home that's 
in one of the richer areas of the North Quabbin, completely off the grid and with solar panels and all of these things. Do you really think that when it all hits that that the more rugged men closer to the downtown area with shotguns aren't going to come up to your house? Like, really think this through and think, like, just because you think that you're safe, are you really? You know, and, and understand that actually you trying to get this much further ahead from the basic population is going to put yourself in more of a risk, I would say, from my own perspective. is going to put yourself more at a risk because there's going to be other people in more dire situations that are going to be willing to do more dire things than you could imagine. And so it doesn't, I don't see it as advantageous to just sort of get yourself prepared instead to look at what we can do as a community and what's our plan as a community. How do people get in touch with you and find out more about this work? Um, we we have a website, which is www.quabbinmediation.org. How do you spell that? Q-U-A-B-B-I-N-M-E-D-I-A-T-I-O-N. So that's quabbinmediation.org. Um, you can look us up for sure. You can get in contact with us. We've done many active bystandership trainings for adults as well. Um, we've done one, we did one um, for a couple of unions, for union stewards to figure out how they can intervene in particular situations that they might need to on the job site, et cetera. Um, so we definitely have been having these discussions with adults as well. And if you're interested in finding out more about this pilot program, I urge you to as well. We've just completed our first year. So now we're wrapping up the evaluation piece and figuring out where to go from here. But our, our plan is to implement this statewide. And what is the book that you mentioned? Oh, um, well, Irvin Staub is the, is the man that helped us to write the curriculum. It's based on his work. And um, how, do you, how do you spell his last name? It's, it's S-T-A-U-B, Staub, S-T-A-U-B, Irvin. And um, the book that I mentioned was The Psychology of Good and Evil. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Keely Malone. Thank you. And that was an interview with Keely Malone talking about her work with Quabbin Mediation and Active Bystandership. And that's about all the time we have this week for Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. been listening to madness radio voices and visions from outside mental health madness radio is broadcast every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m eastern standard time on pacifica affiliate wxojlp fm 103.3 valley free radio in northampton massachusetts for our live internet stream podcasting show archives and more visit madnessradio.net madness radio is co-produced by freedom center and the icarus project For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.